This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're enjoying this podcast in Manawatu, you could make your very own, just like this one. NPR exists to help people like you tell your story or share your passion on air and online. Check out npr.nz for more information. You're listening to Manawatu People's Radio. Welcome to Calling All Workers, the weekly radio show from Unions Manawatu. I'm John Shannon. You can contact us on Facebook at Union Central or by email at rebelshot, R-E-B-E-L-S-H-O-T, at connect, K-I-N-E-C-T dot co dot N-Z. Calling All Workers, the purpose of the show is to raise the profile of unions, advertise union events, present stories and issues of interest to workers and to build community support for union campaigns and activities. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our guest today, Sabelle Locke. Sabelle is a senior lecturer at history at uh, Victoria University, Te Heringa Waka. Uh, Sabelle specialises in the history of New Zealand women and the working class story, including the history of trade unions. Sabelle was, until recently, the convener of the Labour History Project, which sponsors research into the history of left-wing movements uh, in Aotearoa politics. Welcome, Sabelle. Mm-hmm. Good you, John. Are you part of the Elsie and Jack Locke family that also includes such luminaries as Marie Ledbetter and... Keith Locke? You know, I am not. You're not. Uh, oh. I am no relation at all. Oh. It's a question I get asked regularly. Indeed. Um, I have absolutely great respect for that Locke family, but we are no blood relation. Yeah, they certainly have left a formidable legacy, haven't they? Um, they have. Now, you have just published the biography of Bill Anderson, one of the key the significant figures in New Zealand trade union movement in the 20th century. The book is titled Comrade, A Communist Working Class Life, Bill Anderson. It's available at Bruce McKenzie's and other good bookshops, and it's produced by Bridget, uh, published by Bridget Williams Books. Uh, tell us about how this project started, Sabelle. Well, I was, I was asked to write uh, a history of Bill Anderson by Jennifer Francis. Uh, who was for a long time the key administrator for uh, First Union and its predecessors, the National Distribution Union that Bill Anderson was so much a part of. Uh, He was her partner uh, and also she belonged um, with him to the Socialist Party of Aotearoa and before that to the Socialist Unity Party. So she she very much came with an agenda of wanting me to really focus on a a communist history of Bill Anderson. Um, And so that's what I did. Excellent. What was Bill's background, his family, birthplace, and can you tell us a bit about his growing up in 1920s and 30s Auckland? So the interesting thing about Bill Anderson is that he was born in 1924 uh, on the day that Vladimir Lenin died. Um, But his his own background had very little to do with uh, the Soviet Union at that point. Uh, His father was Hans Anderson, uh, was a seafarer, a sea captain uh, by that stage, uh, and Danish, 
I had jumped ship uh, and married um, Auckland-born Minnie Bonham, uh, and he was the youngest of five children. So I grew up in a, a seafaring family. Right, would you call it a working-class family in the traditional sense? It was a working-class family, although his, it, it's a little bit complicated because his, his father was officer class, um, and very much it's seen as when you're the, the master of, of, a, of a ship, uh, of a tug, as he was, then you're crossed over to the other side. Um, but they certainly um, lived uh, in, in a very much in a working-class way, uh, but survived the Depression uh, much better than others because Hans uh, retained work all the way through the Depression. Right, and that was no, no doubt still a, a major influence on his uh, life and on his values and views of life. Yes, I think so. And, and there's, you know, a very early story of, of Bill Anderson getting into trouble at school for bringing what was called red-fed literature to school mm. um, and <laughs> educating others around him um, about left-wing matters. Right. Um, Bill and the Second World War, he, he wasn't a great success as a soldier, I believe, and but he ended up at sea on the Palmyra, that iconic New Zealand sailing ship around the Pacific and that, that? That's right, he did. Uh, after his, his, mother, his mother died, he decided to join the war effort um, because the rest of his family uh, were, were part of it. And he went off and was a merchant seaman from, uh, yeah, for the rest of the war um, from 1942 mm. onwards. And the war and played... Really, a, sorry. No, no, you go on. Uh, the war played a significant part in his radicalisation. You mentioned in the book about his sort of epiphany at the port of Aden and later in Algiers. That's right. I, I think there was a, a number of factors going on for Bill. First of all, the conditions on board the ships that he was working uh, were pretty appalling. Um, you know, the rationing was very limited uh, for able seamen. Um, there were incredibly fast turnarounds to support the war effort. Um, the conditions of accommodation were cramped and grim uh, compared to the officer class on, on the ship um, who dined well. So he had that context of the kind of class relations, if you, if you will, um, becoming clear to him on the ship he was on and then coming in into ports like Aden and seeing the abject poverty of dock workers, those living closest to port and feeling that absolute shock of seeing how poor uh, the living conditions of people were. And then that first instance, you know, just wanting to help, you know, give the shirt off his back to, um, to do something about the situation. Uh, but then began to, um, when he was off watch at sea, read uh, books by Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin and began to understand that there was a, perhaps a deeper way uh, that you could change society by getting involved in the class struggle, and it's that moment, um, you know, that, that really he decides to join uh, the Communist Party, first of Great Britain, uh, and then later when he comes back in 1946 from war, the Communist Party of New Zealand. Can you tell us about the Communist Party of New Zealand at that time that Bill joined in '46? The, the party was at the apex of its power and influence at that time, but that was about to change radically with the Cold War, that's right, and I think it's something we've forgotten that, you know, the Soviet Union was 
absolutely regarded they were they were heroes the red army um and because they were you know new zealand's ally in the war um Stalingrad. You know, that's right that's right and so you know there was a huge the communist party had a huge popularity as a as a result of that um and so yes when bill joined it was it was the absolutely the the, the biggest number of of communists in the Communist Party of New Zealand that they've ever had. Um, yes, that would change quite quickly. And that the trade union movement at the time in New Zealand was controlled, if you like, by Fintan Patrick Walsh and the Federation of Labour. Bill and Walsh didn't exactly see eye to eye? <laughs> no, by that stage. You know, originally Walsh had been a militant, um, but by that stage, he'd become incredibly anti-communist uh, from about the 1930s and really kind of wedded the trade union movement to the Labour Party's stabilisation uh, policies during the war, the rationing, um, you know, no strikes. You know, if anyone threatened to strike, you know, was, um, you know they were kicked out um, of the union, those kinds of things. They were, they were you know, um, charged with desertion. Things like that. So, so he had a, a very much. It was all about going through the arbitration system, um, which was the state um, overseen system of the time, where um, every you know unions had a right to have a representative who would negotiate with their employers and come up with wages and conditions um, right across their particular industry. So, um, you know, all seafarers at that time. Uh, but in order to, to gain this right, you had to give up the right to strike. Um, and so, yes, young Bill Anderson came back from sea, you know, uh, kind of a militant communist, um, very much about um, using um, workers' right to strike to gain um, better wages and conditions for people who'd worked so hard during the war against fascism and wanted to see the results of this, wanted to have some decent wages. Um, so, yes, they came up against each other uh, very quickly. Tell us about the 51 lockout and its influence on Bill's development. I, I quote from your book, quote, but working class people could not win against fascism without a united labour movement. Bill understood his job was to build that united front, the working class struggle inside unions, the Auckland Trades Council and the FOL. Bill also learned uh, to be a disciplined communist and he no longer conducted his class struggle with his fists. Unquote. Did 51 play a big part in his life? A huge part, a huge part, because he was because he was part of that kind of militant minority in the trade union movement um, that in the end kind of um, all retreated to the Waterside Workers Union, which got absolutely smashed in 1951 because the trade union movement led uh, by St. Patrick Walsh um, sided... Um, with the employers, with the by that stage the national government, um, and the union got smashed, and and so that was the lesson that that Bill really learned during that time that that if you know that, that if you had a divided trade union movement, uh, then you were never going to win. So he committed himself from that time um, of very carefully starting to to still drawing on the same. Um, 
kinds of union activities that he loved about the Waterside Workers' Union, that it was a democratic union, that all of the members had a say in how the union should run. They were deeply invested in international union, uh, issues and the, and the peace movement, um, those kinds of issues, but working very, very carefully to, um, to build those issues, but to do so in a way that never threatened your organisation or made you a minority in your union. Uh, so he took that into the Northern Drivers Union uh, and became a key force there. Yeah, so in the aftermath of 51, Bill came to the Northern Drivers Union, which along with the communist movement became the dominant core of his life thereafter. Uh, it, the Northern Drivers were the, the house that Bill built. That's right, that's right. And it was really um, where he put into, he really built. And then I think the Northern Drivers Union really became a flagship for how to build democratic unionism. Um, he was um, mentored by Chip Bailey, who was um, very active in the Wellington Drivers Union. And they were the first um, trade union organisers uh, and then, and then uh, secretaries later on to really build things like delegate uh, conferences, to have delegate structures, to have union newspapers, to have regular elections, to enable union members to bring the issues that they cared about most passionately into the union, into those delegate conferences, and then to set the policy for the union. Uh, so that was really built out of the Northern Drivers uh, and slowly over time uh, was built across other track unions as well. We move back to the issue of the Communist Party. What part did Bill play in the split in the 1960s of the party into the pro-Chinese and pro-Soviet Union SUP parties? Mm. Well, he gradually over time through the 1960s, the um, the Communist Party leadership were reevaluating their relationships with China and the Soviet Union parties over there and deciding in the split between the two, where were they going to stand? And the majority position at that stage um, in the early to mid-1960s was, was to stand with the Chinese Communist Party and a much more revolutionary line. Um, and what that meant was being far more um, suspicious of um, any organisational work that seemed reformist. And so when the union movement in New Zealand was castigated as being too reformist, um, that, you know, communists shouldn't be involved so much, I think that was really what pushed um, Bill Anderson's buttons at that point. Um, and, and he decided, with a, with a range of other communist trade union leaders, particularly in Auckland, but in other areas of the country as well, Christchurch, Wellington... Um, really decided to leave the Communist Party uh, in 1966 and form the Socialist Unity Party. That was Soviet Union aligned. Um, but key for them would be that kind of pragmatic socialism that was about building the working class struggle through the trade unions very slowly over time with the idea of building towards a peaceful overturn of capitalism. Uh, but for those uh, those communist trade unionists, it wasn't about this immediate revolutionary activity. It was very much long-term plan. Mm. 
Uh, the 1970s saw a significant growth in uh, industrial militancy around New Zealand, uh, both in the private and the state sector, and by this time Bill, as head of the Northern Drivers Union, was a significant national figure in the union movement. That's right. Um, really, the shift came, I think, in 1974, uh, when um, trade unionists had just won the right to strike. Uh, in 1973. So employers looked for different kinds of ways to try and um, stop trade unions from going on strike. So one of them was to use um, a common common law injunction, uh, go to the courts and then force uh, workers back to work. And so the Northern Drivers Union had gotten behind the Seafarers Union um, who were um, challenging the Waiheke Ferry um, being used uh, without union labour um, run by an uh, employer called Drumgool. And so and so the, the court said, yes, the grant of the injunction, so now all of you have to go back to, to work. And Bill Anderson um, said, no, not doing it. So he was arrested, uh, put in Mount Eden prison in July 1974, and in response, once people heard 20,000 workers across Auckland um, down their tools uh, and stopped work. Uh, it was a huge, huge well of protest um, across Auckland uh, and also down in Kawaro, uh at the mills down there. And it was threatening to spread uh, that there would be uh, a general strike right across the country if something wasn't done. Uh, in fact, um, Norm Kirk was so worried, um, he put the um, army on standby um, to bring in if that was the case. Uh, and then a deal was negotiated. Um, but all the, all the time, Bill was very, very careful to ensure that union members were kept abreast of what was being negotiated and only with their say-so um, did they negotiate a deal. And then as a result, you know, you had, when he was... Um, the court uh, was found in his favour. He got out of jail. They got the conditions they wanted. Then 10,000 people joined him to walk down Queen Street. And the image on the front cover of my book captures that incredible moment, uh, which it gives you a sense of Bill Anderson was kind of a representative figure or symbolic of the working class not putting up with it. You know, we won't put up with employers playing us this way. Um, and this is what we'll do uh, to show to show how much um, unity there was really across across the movement at that point. And um, after that sort of high point of industrial militancy in the seventies and into the eighties, things went a bit pear shaped after the Muldoon years. And for unions in the in the 1980s, 1990s, the Employment Contract Act arrived, the economic implosion in 87, the, the Nissan Way controversy in unions and the, and the collapse of the yeah. Soviet Union. How did Bill handle all of that? <laughs> um, in lots of different ways. Um, I guess one of the things I really wanted to focus on the book that isn't often talked about is the power of Muldoon's Red Scare. Um, you know, as soon as he, um, in fact, not even, but even before he was elected in 1975, um, he was, you know, using, um, campaigning as an anti-communist, anti-trade union um, 
Prime Minister. And he kept up his attacks, particularly targeting Bill Anderson, right through the 19, you know, from 1975 um, through to 1981. And during that period, it didn't work. The trade union movement was buoyant. Uh, it was involved in all kinds of issues and won. Won amazing strikes. Um, you had the first ever general strike in 1979. You had, you know, winning a 21% um, wage increase at Tinleys in 1980. Um, However, by 1981, the public started to believe this rhetoric that trade union leaders um, were wrecking the national economy with their ridiculous demands. Um, And so that was the kind of swing away um, from, you know, this kind of uh, the height of the trade union movement. So you had that kind of environment. And then, you know, it seemed like, you know, the Red Scare was over in 1984 because the Labour government was elected back into power, you know, traditionally the ally of trade unions and so forth. But then, of course, as you said, we had the beginning um, of a neoliberal agenda. And so, you know, Bill, Bill during that period, um, became, was the most accommodationist he'd been in his life. I think he really wanted... He was terrified that National were going to get back in an 87 and completely eradicate the whole industrial relations system. Um, but by 1988, um, the grassroots members of his own union persuaded him that really needed to continue the struggle. And so that's um, when he started um, re-evaluating and left the Socialist Unity Party and formed the Socialist Party of Aotearoa. But of course, by that stage, you did have national win in the election, coming in and doing what they'd threatened, which was just this dismantle the trade union industrial the industrial relations system that upheld trade unionism in the law and then you have the long-term decline um, of trade union members uh, during that period of time and so Bill was staunch in continuing to amalgamate with other unions uh, that had had that policy of, of working class struggle um, using pickets and the courts to try and win back as many rights for workers as they could. But it, it was hard. It was really hard. Um, and, you know, he, when the Soviet Union um, was dismantled, he he let go of the Soviet Union, but he never let go of his Marxist-Leninist principles. Right? For him, he decided um, it was the leader's of the Soviet Union had sold the people out. It wasn't the ideology that was wrong. And so he continued to hold those Marxist-Leninist principles for the rest of his life. So, Bill, Bill as a person, um, I remember him as a calm, sort of considered type person. He could be a bit long-winded and boring at times, but he uh, was very considered about issues and weighed things up. And... The other thing I remember particularly about him is his friendship and his loyalty to his friends, even when there were quite fierce arguments going on inside the uh, various communist parties he went through. Uh, he still retained a, a, a large degree of loyalty with, with many of those people. That's right. He was, he was loyal. Uh, he was kind. He was a very calm uh debater 
he was a, a very, very clever strategic thinker. He wrote strategic paper after strategic paper. I read many of them. Um, always coming up with new ideas of where to go next. Okay. Bill um, died in 2005, so it's been 17 years. Can we just sort of sum up his legacy as a unionist, as a communist, as a participant in broad protest and uh, change activities around women, Māori and and so on in New Zealand. How could you sum up his legacy? (laughs) He shows us that trade unions can be social movements. He shows us that it's not enough to reform the capitalist system. It's only with the overthrowing of capitalism that we could um, get rid of the exploitation that sits at the heart of how we live our lives every day. He shows us uh, that we should nurture younger generations and retire before we die from trade union office. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you, Sibylla, and and thanks for your book. I, I was a young union organiser in the 1970s and 80s in the Auckland Waikato region with the PSA and then with the Shop Employees Union and I was an SUP member at the time so Bill was a huge influence on me and his friendship is something I treasure to this day so your book will be in a very prominent position on my bookshelf. Thank you very much, Sibel, for the book and thanks for your interview. Uh, We will... We will now uh, end the show with uh, the appropriate song, the Internationale, in Billy Bragg's version. Stand up, all victims of oppression, for the tyrants fear your so hard to your possessions for you have nothing if you have no rights let racist ignorance be ended for respect makes the empires fall freedom is merely privilege extended unless enjoyed by one Oh, 
enjoy this NPR podcast, please consider subscribing. Our podcasts are available on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify, as well as the accessmedia.nz app. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.npr.nz forward slash donate.